You know what I can't wait for? I can't wait to pull that video out in like 15 years. <laughs> I can't wait to send that to the high school graduation committee. I, there's so many things that I can't wait for. And it's gonna be so gratifying if God allows it to happen. And, and those are the moments I think you live for as a dad or as a mom. But if you have been a uh, guest of ours today, you may not be aware of it, but we are in week three of a series called Wish Book. Because when I was a kid, um, getting the Christmas Wish Book catalog was, was almost as exciting and almost as magical as Christmas itself. Because on every single page, it seemed like there was a snapshot of what Christmas could look like. Uh, on every single page, it was like the catalog was inviting me to imagine the seemingly endless number of gift possibilities that could be below the tree on Christmas morning. And you would just read through the book and you would just circle things and make lists and show grandma, show grandpa, show mom, show dad. And on every single page, it was like a whisper to invite us to, to wish, to wish for things, to hope for things and to live with anticipation of Christmas, which was soon to come. But if you were a child who liked Christmas like I did, and you were in a family that made a big deal of Christmas like I was, you know that the hardest part of all of that was the waiting. The waiting was the hardest part. I mean, the wishing, that was easy. The waiting, however, not so easy. The, the waiting just seemed like it took forever and it took forever and it took forever. So we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited for the inevitability of Christmas, the inevitable arrival of Christmas. And that's how the season worked. We wished and we waited and with anticipation, we looked forward to Christmas. Now that's just not our childhood experience for many of us. It's essentially the storyline of the entire Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 12, Here's a crash course if you're not very familiar with the Old Testament. From Genesis chapter 12 to the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there's four chapters in the book of Malachi, but from Genesis chapter 12 through Malachi chapter four and the last verse of chapter four, essentially the Old Testament is telling one collective story. It is the Jewish people, it's God's people, it's Israel watching and waiting for God to keep a very particular promise, a promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And the promise that God made to Abraham was that one day one of his descendants would be born. And when that descendant would be born, somehow that descendant would bless the entire world. It was the promise of a coming savior. It was the promise of a coming king, a final king that would be born from the line and the house of David, who would rule over a kingdom that would never end. And the Old Testament is the story of God's people waiting and wishing for that promise to come to pass. They were wishing and they were waiting and they were living with this anticipation that one day God would keep that promise. In other words, the Old Testament, to put it in a way that makes sense in the season, the Old Testament is the story of God's people walking towards God's promise of Christmas. That's what the Old Testament is all about from Genesis 12 all the way through the end of Malachi. It's the story of God's people walking towards God's promise of Christmas, that a savior would come, a king would be born, and the world would never be the same 
because of it. Then when you get to the New Testament, you find that the people of God, they have been waiting on God to keep his promise for 2,000 years. It's hard for many of us to think about a couple of hundred years or picture 500 years or a thousand years. It's kind of hard for us to understand that, to be able to measure that in our minds, just what that would feel like or how long that actually is. But we find that as the New Testament opens up, the people of God have been waiting 2,000 years for God to keep his promise. So that means a lot of generations believed and they died believing without ever having seen God keep that promise. And then as the curtains open up on the opening pages of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, what we find is that God is on the move. He's moving the pieces. He's working the details, he's setting the stage and seemingly without the world even noticing and without very few people paying attention, God has been bringing the world to the brink, to the very threshold of Christmas itself. He's brought the world in history itself, 2000 years of waiting comes to the edge and God is prepared to answer his promise. And as the story is told to us, we meet some people who are much like us. People on the opening pages of the Gospels who are busy living life. Busy just trying to survive life, managing life, managing all that life throws at us, managing raising the kids, making a living, you know, making ends meet, dealing with this disappointment, dealing with this crisis, dealing with this problem, dealing with this illness, you know, just trying to keep up. There's the moments of bitterness, there's the moments of sweetness, there's the grief, and then there's the moments that we celebrate life and, and it's just all thrown at us. Almost always, all at the same time. And so we're just trying to survive, we're just trying to work our way through it. And I don't know if that's how you feel, but oftentimes that's how I feel. I'm a husband, I'm a dad, I'm a pastor, I'm a friend. I've got family, I've got extended family, I've got friends that are like family, I've got a faith family. And life throws a bunch at me. And I know that life throws a bunch at you. And sometimes it's like we're barely swimming with our nose above the water. And it's like if one more thing gets in the water, the water's gonna go just over our noses and we're gonna lose the ability to breathe at all. And that's kind of where the people were that we meet in the opening pages of the gospel. And then out of nowhere to these people that are so much like us, something happened, something unforeseen, something unplanned, something unexpected, something that changes the course of things, that alters things in an irreversible way. I like to think of it as an interruption. As the Christmas story begins to be told to us in the gospel of Luke particularly, there is an interruption in the lives of people like you and me. And an invitation is simply when the continuity of things, it gets broken. And when an interruption happens, it forces you to deviate from your plan. It causes you to break from your expectations of how you thought it was gonna look and sound and turn out. Uh, some of you, you know all about interruptions. You've had some this year. We've all had some in the last couple of years. There was the interruption of losing your job. You hadn't planned on it, you, you didn't expect it, you didn't see it coming, and then all of a sudden, someone handed you a pink slip, someone sent an email, someone called you into the office, and the job was over. And you didn't see it coming, and you didn't know why, and, and you, you just, you were left with your head spinning. There was the unforeseen, unexpected, premature death. The news came, and you couldn't believe it. 
There was a car accident. There, there, was, there was an illness and it was quick. Uh, there was a chronic illness that's changed your life. A car accident, a financial hit. Something happened with your son or your daughter that you couldn't control and they kind of got away and they got outside the box of things and they made some bad choices and things have gone bad for them and consequently you've had to deal with it as well and the whole family's had to deal with it. It's, it was, it's been this one gigantic interruption. It, it kind of just changed things. Things haven't been able to get back to the same since that interruption. Interruptions are a part of life. And as you know, and as I know, sometimes life just doesn't turn out the way that we thought that it would. If it always turned out the way that we thought it would, that would be one thing, but we know that's not true. And we know that oftentimes when it comes to an interruption, that oftentimes there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing that we can do about it. So what do you do when an interruption knocks on your door? What do you do when an interruption calls you up on the phone? What do you do when life goes off of the script, your script, the script that you had written, the plan that you had? What do you do when the plans for your life, the plans for your career, the plans for your children's lives, when it all gets unraveled and you can't control any of those outcomes and your plans lay shattered on the ground? What do you do then? Do you resist it and fight against it? Do you try to outmaneuver it? Do you try to outsmart it? Do you try to you know, work your charisma, work your connections, work your relationships? Do you try to buy your way out of it? You try to pray your way out of it? What do you do when your plans are broken, shattered, on the ground, seems irreversible? Do you fight against it or do you embrace it? And for most of us, the intuition is to fight against it, to resist it, because we see the interruption as bad. We see the interruption as something negative. We see the interruption as something irredeemable. We see that there can possibly be no good in this interruption that has thrown all the plans in disarray. It seems like there's nothing positive in all of this. What do you do when the interruption comes and somewhere along the way in the midst of it, you realize it's a a horrifying thought if you've ever been there. It's a terrifying place to be, but you realize that your plan and God's plan are not the same plan. That in the midst of this interruption, you've taken a look at things and and you've tried to examine, you've tried to take inventory and somewhere in the midst of it, you have this thought. Well, if this is God's plan, it's certainly not my plan. And if this is God's plan, I'm not even sure if I like God's plan. I'm not even sure if I can get excited about God's plan. I, I, don't even know, I don't even know what kind of God would have this type of plan. If this is God's plan, I, I think I would rather have my plan. What do you do when you realize that your plan and God's plan are not the same plan? And so we're gonna learn something about that today in the Christmas story, exactly where we left off last week. And this is how Luke tells the story. He says, in the sixth month, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, last week, if you weren't here, we talked about how this angel Gabriel appeared to Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, who was a priest. And so now this is six months later. Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. And Luke says, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And six months into her pregnancy, God sends the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, time out. This is Gabriel's second assignment in six months. Remember, I told you last week, he hadn't done anything in 500 years. 
Heaven had been silent for 400 years. So this is a busy time for Gabriel. He's got two assignments in six months and both of them are monumentally important. Now, the first appearance of Gabriel is important to note and how different it is from the second appearance of Gabriel. The first time he appeared to Zechariah, a priest, a part of the religious aristocracy in Jerusalem. Gabriel appears at the temple in the holy place, a curtain away from where the glory of God was said to dwell in the holiest of holies. He appears to Zechariah at the center of Jewish power, at the center of Jewish faith and culture and influence and finance, the temple in Jerusalem. And for the Jewish people, whether living in Israel or abroad, there was no holier a place on the planet than the place where that temple was erected and built. And so Gabriel shows up to the most important piece of real estate on the planet the first time that he comes. But the second time that God sends him, he looks at Gabriel and says, Gabriel, I got another job for you. Okay, boss, where you want me to go? Back to Jerusalem? Nope, nope, not back to Jerusalem. Where you want me to go? Judea? You want me to go somewhere where you've done some things before? Mount Carmel? You want me to go down by the River Jordan somewhere? Where, where you want me to go? Where, where am I going, boss? You're going to Nazareth. I'm sorry, where? Nazareth. Now, for us, when we read it in the 21st century, we, we just read past these things and, and a lot of the context is lost on us and a lot of the scandal of all of it's lost on us. But, but Nazareth, it was an insignificant and a despised place. Now we know from modern archeologists, they tell us that maybe only 150 to 250 people lived in Nazareth, so it was a really small place. But the people there over the centuries, they'd been really loud politically. They'd been very obnoxious politically. Uh, matter of fact, around the time that King Herod died, there was a Roman armory uh, located very close to Nazareth. And some folks in Nazareth uh, got together a group of people and they robbed that armory. And the Romans, the Romans, if you know anything about the Romans, they didn't handle those types of things well. Uh, when it came to anybody, you know, practicing insurrection or rebellion against Caesar, they squashed it. They would ask questions later. So what did the Romans do when the armory got robbed? They crucified 2,000 Jewish people as a way of saying, you better back down. You best back down. And people in Israel, they blamed the people of Nazareth for that event. There, there would be another insurrection a little bit later on. And so there was just a deep hatred. It was a place of nobodies, good for nothing type of people. That when you heard that somebody was from Nazareth, oh, makes sense. Oh, I know what to expect. Nazareth was the wrong side of their tracks. It's not where you wanted to be from. If you were from there, you probably fudged it on the resume. You would never want anybody to know that you're from there. And you know what I'm talking about. This, this type of mentality still exists. There, there's parts of our country, there's cities in our country and parts of cities in those cities that are looked down on with disdain and people think, oh, you're from there. Oh, I know what to expect. I know what goes on there. And there's a little bit of disrespect and sometimes there's a little bit of despising that goes along. And so this is a human thing. We've not evolved past this. If you think we've evolved past this, you've not been paying attention. This has been through with us throughout history. And Nazareth, it's one of those places. Nobody wanted to be from there because everybody from there was hated. And so the idea that Luke is, because he's a master storyteller, is that if you're gonna expect for God to do something big, 
obviously you would expect Jerusalem. Perhaps Judea, which was the heartland of his activity throughout the centuries. But if God was gonna do something big, surely it would not be in a place in Galilee called Nazareth. I've been there. I got the opportunity to go there. If you blink twice, you've gone past it. It's in nowhere. It's in no man's land. It's kind of off the beaten path and people there were just kind of left behind and forgotten. But here, here's God giving us a signal of, of what is about to come and about how his kingdom works and the values of his kingdom. He steps outside of the centers of power. He steps outside of the centers of finance and influence and politics. And even outside the center of where religion was thought to take place at its most important levels. And he steps outside of the religious establishment, outside the power structures, and outside of all the influence of Jerusalem. And he shows up by sending Gabriel to Nazareth, to a teenage girl who was probably about 12, 13, maybe on the upside, 14 years old. And Luke says, don't, don't miss that. That God deals in all circles. Don't be so shallow and don't be so, so short-sighted and don't be of such little faith that you would ever discount anybody because of who they are or where they came from. Don't be that person. Don't, don't automatically assume that somebody is outside of God's scope of grace. Don't, don't assume that anybody's beyond God's reach. Don't ever assume that anybody's beyond God using them. And all of a sudden, from the very beginning, we see God working in all these different circles. And this is all part of the story that Luke is going to tell. So he says that Gabriel shows up to a virgin pledged to be married to a man by the name of Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, every Jewish person, every good Jewish person knew that the Messiah was not only gonna be a descendant of Abraham, but also gonna be a descendant of David. And we've talked about that back in week one, God made a promise to Abraham. He echoed that promise to David and gave a bit more clarity to say, David, one of your future descendants will be an heir to a throne that will never end and will rule over a kingdom that will never end. So Luke, keep in mind, he's telling the Christmas story, but he's writing the biography that we call the gospel of Luke. This is just the beginning of the story that he's going to tell. He's writing about the entire story of Jesus from his birth, throughout his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and what he told his disciples after the resurrection. So he's got a big story to tell. But what's so great about this and what's so important about this is that as he opens up the Christmas story, as he opens up his gospel, it is standing on the shoulders of the stories and the events that come to us out of the Old Testament. This is why there's not an unimportant part of our Bible. Uh, because it's all coming together. We've got to know something about what was happening in the Old Testament. And so Luke starts his story by telling his story, standing on the shoulders of the promise that God made to Abraham and to David. And so he assumes that us readers, we're going we're gonna to catch that. And that's why he says that she was engaged to Joseph, a descendant of David. Dum, da, dum, dum, right? So he says, pay attention to that. Now, 
Mary and Joseph, as Luke says, they're engaged. Now, engagement probably didn't look like yours. You didn't go out on some dates and, you know, you know, try to hold each other's hands slowly. You know, you try to, you know, you went to the movies. You remember how that worked? And, you know, you just kind of oddly kept your hand right there. And hopefully, and she had her hand on her leg and you just wanted them to touch. And then, and then they finally touched and you held hands. And, and then you tried to make up an excuse to get close enough to kiss. And then from kissing, it went way too far too fast. And, and you know, so you made up for lost ground for some of you, not all of you. And, and then, then you decided somewhere along the way, we've dated for a while. I think I want to settle down. I think I want to get married. But back in the good old days, that's not how they did it. The parents got together and said, you're a child, you don't know best, we know best, we're gonna tell you who to marry. Can I get an amen? Far better way to do it in my opinion. I'm just saying, we've got a short list of some girls in our church at home. I may be calling you in a few years, see if we can strike a deal. I think you should be open to it. But they would, you know, the, you know, they would say, hey, you know, I think our kids should get together. And then they would work out a price. It seems so antiquated. It seems, it just seems so weird to us. We can't understand it. They would work out a price for the bride. And so, you know, the groom's family would give a price to the bride's family. And, and then there would be this engagement, which would be legal. It would be binding. I mean, it was contractual. And, and you were as good as married. You couldn't have sex, but if you had sex with anybody else, especially if you were the girl, there were high prices to pay, including potential death. So this was nothing to take seriously. So the stakes were high. And so there would be about a year between the initial engagement and the wedding. And so somewhere in between the engagement and the wedding, this is where we find Mary. She's engaged to Joseph. Their two families are about to become one family. She's a part of a bonding legal relationship and she knows how serious that is, especially for a female in the first century culture. She's got plans. She's got expectations. She's got an idea of what her future looks like. Her mama's talked to her, grandmama's talked to her, some of the older ladies in the community in Nazareth, they've told her what to expect and what to get ready for. And so she's kind of got an idea of what the rest of her life's looking like. And She's looking forward to her wedding day. And all of that is just about to get turned upside down because there's an interruption that shows up in her life. It says the angel went to her and said, greetings or hello, greetings, you, are, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And every time I read this verse, I chuckle a little bit because I imagine that's probably not how Mary felt. Life's not easy for Mary. Life's not easy in Nazareth. Life's not easy for anybody really, but for the top of the top of the top. For everybody else, it's hand to mouth. For everybody else, it's hard to survive. You're, you're growing your own food. You're trying to get food the best you can. You're trying to do your best to find water. Food and water are scarce. It's a difficult time to be alive. It's a difficult place to try to live. And I imagine for Mary, being 12, 13, 14 years old, it, it just didn't always feel like the Lord was with her. It didn't always feel like the Lord was with her family. She grew up in Nazareth. They're not rich, they're peasants. The biggest thing that her family probably had going for it is the fact that they're gonna receive a bridal dowry, that they're gonna receive a bridal price. And that, that would be instrumental in helping that family to survive. And so it's a difficult time, it's a difficult place. It's probably not how she felt, but I just want to remind us quickly, how you feel is rarely 
a good indicator of what's most true about your life. There may be moments in your life you don't feel like God is with you, but God says he's with you and you have to decide what's most true, how you feel or what God has said. And what God has said is always gonna be more important and more reliable than how you feel. And when you find that your feelings are siding against your faith, always side with your faith against your feelings. And so Mary, she probably doesn't feel this way, but, but the angel shows up and says, the Lord is with you, Mary. And it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. She was kind of startled. She was caught off guard. And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And she's trying to figure it out. Her head's spinning. It'd be like any of us. And she's a little, you know, just a little scared. And you know how you do when you get scared? Sometimes it makes you irritated. You know, somebody scares you and, you know, you're so scared. She says, what'd you do that for? You know, it's like, and she gets a little ticked at Gabriel. I mean, little Mary has got a little bit of a temper. And so she's troubled. She, the, really, the Greek, the Greek is more of a, along the terms of she's, she's agitated. She's aggravated. And so she's trying to figure all this out. And it says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. That sounds good. That sounds great. That sounds like money. That sounds like blessing. That sounds like opportunity. That sounds like breakthrough coming down the, coming down the road for me. Gonna knock at my door, breakthrough's on the way. I'm turning the corner, baby. Come on, somebody, I'm turning the corner. The turn's coming, the turn's coming. Sounds like what I hear a lot on television. Sounds like what I read a lot about in Christian literature these days. My breakthrough's coming. My answer prayer's on the way. Favor, favor, favor. The paycheck is in the mail, baby, come on. I could never be a televangelist, just couldn't. I, I, I'm not, I don't have that gift. It just sounds like, man, there's good stuff on the way. Lots of blessings, minimal problems. You're favored. You found favor with God. It's like lottery. It's like spiritual lottery. It's what it sounds like. But maybe it's not so much like that. Mary, God has decided to bless you, not because of what you've done, but because he's, he's extended grace to you. He's extending grace to you, Mary. You don't deserve what I'm about to tell you. You didn't earn this. This is God's grace and God's favor in your life. Let me tell you, Mary, you're gonna conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Mary knew what the most high meant. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This is an echo of not only Abraham's promise, this is an echo of David's promise. Mary, you're gonna give birth to a king. You're gonna conceive a son and that son is gonna be the son of the most high. He is gonna be a descendant of Abraham. He'll be a descendant of David. He is a king, Mary. And this baby, Mary, is gonna challenge all human empires. He's a king who will demand and deserve absolute allegiance. Mary, what you can't possibly understand right now in this moment, but God is about to make a personal appearance in history and you're gonna give birth to him. And Mary, she's listening. And she says, How? She's had just enough biology, just enough homeschooled anatomy to know, hmm, 
I, you know, I feel like this is an important detail. You see, I'm a virgin. And Gabriel's like, I don't know your point. <laughs> what? What? And Mary's trying to figure this out. It's okay. It's understandable. We're like, how? I mean, how is this supposed to work? I, I need more information. You ever feel like you need more information from God all the time? You know, I, how? How? How's this? You promised this, but how? How's it going to be? What's it going to? Tell me the ins and outs. I need to know the details. I need more clarity. I need clarity. I don't have clarity right now. Could you give me clarity, God? God's not a big fan of clarity. Often, He, he just says, "I'm going to do it, and you'll know when I do it. And when it's done, you'll pretty much know that it has been done." Uh, other than that, it's going to be on a need-to-know basis. And so she said, how's this going to be? And the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary, he's going to be different. He's going to be holy. He's going to be the Son of God himself. Mary, there's no precedent for this. This isn't natural. This is supernatural. So if you're here and virgin birth is a difficult thing for you to believe or it sounds mythological, you know, I could tell you about how there's no myth like this one found anywhere in the Roman or Greek myths. And it's certainly not within the world of Jewish myth. Uh, a virgin birth was not something that was on really anybody's radar uh, in the generations leading up to this. But Luke is making a very specific case that Mary has never known a man. He's gonna tell us two or three different ways that, that she's a virgin. And if that's a hard thing for you to believe, keep in mind that if you believe that God became a man, if you believe in the incarnation, if you believe in the resurrection, <laughs> this, this is not, it's not a big stretch. I mean, matter of fact, parthenogenesis, if you wanna get technical, it, it's being found in nature more and more, more than we ever suspected. Snakes have been documented to be able to give birth without sexual reproduction. Uh, even recently, an endangered bird uh, on the endangered species list that was constantly watched and monitored and tracked uh, gave birth without any type of sexual contact. And so, you know, if, if this can happen randomly in nature, if God gets involved, I'm, you know, I just tend to believe God can do what he wants to do. And I may not be able to explain it. It may make me uncomfortable. It may not make me sound like the smartest cookie in the room, but at the end of the day, if I'm with God, I am the smartest cookie in the room, okay? So, you know, you just got to get past some of that stuff. You got to let it go because some of this, it is outlandish. It does sound impossible, but that is some of the point of the story. That if God does exist, as we will see, the impossible becomes possible because if God exists, Oh, this was worth your trip. If God exists, impossibilities, the word impossible is a human invention. It's a human word. God knows no such thing as impossibilities. All things are possible. So he's telling this story and he says, okay, I'll give you a little, let me give you a little bit of help on this. Let me give you a little bit of, little bit of faith. Even Elizabeth, you know how old she was. I mean, she was old. Uh, Zachariah wouldn't ever tell me how old she was, but she's old. Even Elizabeth, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive, impossible, is in her sixth month of pregnancy, Mary. And then Gabriel says to Mary what she needed to hear. And Gabriel says to Mary, what we need to hear. And Gabriel says to Mary, what the world needs to hear. 
for no word from God will ever fail. Now, some translations that some of us grew up on uh, renders that nothing will be impossible with God. And I like that. I, I like the fact that God is not limited in any way. Any limits that I put on God, I have tried to put on God, which is a laughable thing for a finite creature such as myself to put limitations on an infinite being like God himself. So, you know, how can I put limits on God? And if I think that there are limits to what God can do, then they're just of human construct. They're not in reality what's most true about God. And so here it is, nothing will be impossible with God. Imagine that type of faith. That if we wholeheartedly as the people of God, we believe nothing, is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. That means there's no prayer too big to ask. There, there's nothing too large that you can't believe that it's not possible. It may not happen, but to believe that God, God is the God who can do impossible things. But, but I love that translation, but I love this one more. No word from God will ever fail. Mary, what God says what God promises is as good as done. When God says it, Mary, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's as certain as though it has already happened. No word from God will ever fail. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because this, is, this was my favorite part this week. And if it's not your favorite part, I'm gonna need you to give me grace and pretend it's your favorite part too, okay? If you love your pastor, say, uh-huh. Okay, I knew some of you didn't. I just now got it confirmed. You've been outed. So this was my favorite part. No word from God will ever fail. It is God's word. It is the words that proceed from God that create reality. If you think back to the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did God do it? How did God initiate it? How did God create the impetus that created the world? He spoke. And he said, let there be light. And then everything, everything came into existence. A momentary fraction before, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there was everything. Every element, every particle, every quark, everything came into being. And in that moment, began to organize itself around the words of God. God spoke it. And then reality began to build itself around what God had spoken. Mary, no word from God will fail because when God speaks his promises, you may not be able to see it in that moment, but all things begin to come together to form that reality. And when God speaks it, things go in motion. And Mary, what you haven't seen for 2000 years, when God spoke it to Abraham, the plan was in motion. Things were moving, people were moving, empires were rising and empires were falling. Kings were coming up and kings were stepping down. Armies marched in and armies marched away in all of it. It was organizing itself throughout the centuries, Mary, to bring itself to this moment in time to bring about the reality of God's spoken promise because no word from God, Mary, will ever fail. Mary. It is God's words that sets the parameters of your future. 
It's God's words that sets the parameters of your present. As we said a couple of weeks ago, it's God's promises that become the windows to your future because when God promises it, it will come to pass. It shall come to pass. Matter of fact, even now, it is coming to pass because all things are moving in the direction of fulfilling God's promises to you because no word of God will ever fail. When he speaks it, it is good as done. And you don't need to forget that, Mary. And some of us, we don't need to forget that that the ultimate reality of life beyond what we can see and touch and smell and taste, the ultimate reality of life is what God has spoken and what God has spoken to be true, true about you, true about himself, true about life, true about sin, true about his promises. That's what's most true despite how things look, despite how things sound. Last Friday, we had the funeral of my, my grandfather. He was with us on Thanksgiving on Thursday and Tuesday morning. He breathed his last breath on this side of eternity and he stepped into eternal life. And when I got the phone call driving towards Middlesboro, I was in the car with Allison and I got the call and and I, I'd never had hurt like that before. I'd, I'd never had my heart broke like that before. I'd said goodbye to people. I'd lost people. But I'd never, I'd never felt that before. And it was so real. And the pain was so deep. And it was one of those, it was one of those hurts. It's one of those pains that the tears just, they just come. You, you're not even thinking of anything. It's just, there is a response and you can't control it. And so Friday, we had the funeral and Saturday, we had the, the burial and, and the family were there and friends were there and uh, some of the grandkids spoke and some of the great grandkids, Shepherd and Grayson, they wanted to say a word about their great grandpa at the graveside, and, and they spoke. And I, I just, I was sitting there looking at, at his casket, somebody that I, I adored, somebody that I, I loved and have so many great stories of growing up with throughout my childhood. And I kept looking at that casket and I just, I just kept thinking, this is so real, but it's not what's most real. Yeah, it's real. The casket's real. I've seen him. He's in there. It's all real. I, I saw the grave. It's dug about 100 yards away. It's all real. But it wasn't what was most real. The reality was that my grandpa was, was dead. But the greater reality were the things that God had spoken that were already coming to pass. Things like to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Words like Jesus spoke that I am the resurrection and the life. And if a man believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Words that the apostle Paul echoed to say, we grieve, but we don't grieve as people without hope. For we believe that if Jesus died and rose again, we believe that those who also sleep in Christ will rise again. 
We believe in a future resurrection where we will inherit eternal bodies that will live in the new world to come. And I just, I just sat there and I thought to myself, even now, the promises of God are what's most real. The point that I'm trying to say is this, that when God speaks a promise over you, and when God speaks a promise to you and to me, that we take into the hardest moments of our life, those promises are already working to come to pass. Reality is forming itself around those promises and you can count on it, you can bank on it, you can stand on it, you can die on it. I wrote down a few promises in my journal that even now are coming to pass. Isaiah 40, 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even now it's happening. When you pass through the waters, Isaiah 43, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, they will not burn you. The flames will not set you ablaze. Even now that's happening. Even now, reality is building itself around God's promises. Before they call, I will answer, saith the Lord. And while they are still speaking, I will answer them. Promise after promise after promise. Ask and you shall have. Seek and you'll find. If your father's being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father give good things to those who ask? Even now, every promise, God is moving everything in the direction of making it come to pass. And here's the thing, and we're wrapping it up. When you trust the promises of God, you won't fear the will of God. When you believe that no matter how bad it gets, that God's still gonna work it out for good because he promised to do so, you won't fear the will of God. When you know that God promised that no matter how deep the ashes are that lie on the ground, that he will bring beauty out of them, you won't fear the potential of ashes in the future. And when you believe that even those that you love lay dead, that they live again. It changes the way that you face some of the most difficult and hardest moments of life. When you know that you're never alone, when you know you're always loved, you can stand in the present and live with hope for the future. That's what Mary did. This is what she said. This is what she said. I am the Lord's servant. If no word of God will fail, then I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left. She said, I, I volunteer. This is Mary giving consent. This is Mary saying, I'm willing to walk away from my plan for the sake of God's plan. I'm willing to sacrifice my dreams, my expectations. I'm willing to sacrifice my agenda for the sake of God's. This is trust. Trust is more than words. Trust is more than a song. Trust is action. The proof is in the pudding. That when you trust and you obey, when you trust and you move, that's how you know it's trust. Mary trusts the heart of God and because of it, she's not afraid of the will of God. She surrenders her plans. This is what she was saying. Whatever your will for me may be, let it be. Can we all just say that everywhere, Williamsburg, Somerset, Middlesbrough, right here in London, let's all say that together. 
Whatever your will for me may be, let it be. Let's, let's say it again. Whatever your will for me be, let it be. I think I know where her son got it when he said in the garden. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is trust. Mary's saying, even though it's not gonna be easy, even though there's gonna be difficult conversations, I don't even know what I'm gonna tell my mom and dad and I don't even wanna think about what I'm gonna tell Joseph. She doesn't ask how it's all gonna turn out. She doesn't ask for more details. She doesn't ask what the payoff and the payout will be. But somewhere deep in her heart, she believed that whatever will happen will be good and it will be worthwhile. She didn't ask for this assignment. This was God's plan and purpose for her life. It's not gonna be an easy one, but her trust in God compels her to say yes. If it's hard, yes. If it's painful, yes. If it's not the way I want it to be, yes. Even though God, there's a lot of uncertainties, a lot of unanswered questions, yes. Even though for whatever reason, you're not giving me all the details, yes. Faith isn't not having fear. Faith is moving forward in spite of your fear. It's a decision to trust. We love the promises of God. We often just don't like the process that we have to go through before we get to the promise. The journey towards the promise is often painful. It was for Mary. 40 days after Mary had Jesus, because of Jewish law, she was considered unclean. And on the 40th day, her and Joseph would have trekked about 10 miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to make an offering so she could be made clean again. Joseph probably bartered somewhere outside the temple for a couple of turtle doves because turtle doves, it was the sacrifice of a poor working man. He wished that he could have afforded a lamb, but two turtle doves was all that he could get. He probably took them by bag back in and Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus, just a few weeks old, began to walk through the court of the temple when all of a sudden an elderly man storms up to Mary and says, let me see the child. And she's, for some reason though, she hands him over. Someone says, oh, you overlook Simeon. And he holds the baby and he says, behold, the salvation of Israel. God kept his promise to me that I would not die 
before I saw the Messiah. And as he handed the baby back to Mary, he said to Mary, a sword will pierce your very soul. You will nurse him and sing to him and rock him to sleep. You will tell him stories of angels singing and shepherds visiting and wise men from afar. You'll watch him grow up, see his cousin baptize him, hear his sermons, see his miracles. But you'll be there that day when they strip him down and whip him with a cat of nine tails. And like any mother would, you would wanna jump in and take it for him. And if you could stop it, you would. But Mary, you can't. There's a sword that's coming for your soul. You'll be there as they march him through the streets of the Via Della Rosa, as he carries his cross up to Golgotha, and as they hang him naked in front of you, you'll want to look away, but he's your son, he's your baby, crowned with thorns, nails in his hand and nails in his feet. You'll watch him suffocate and bleed to death and it'll be like a sword in your soul, Mary. And when he says it is finished, you'll know what a soul that's been pierced feels like. Mary would see all of it. But three days after Jesus died, she heard stories that the tomb was empty, that her son was alive, resurrected from the dead. She was there that day a few weeks later when he ascended back into heaven. And then in the book of Acts, we find her in the upper room the day the church is born not as the mother of Jesus as much as she was a follower of Jesus. She had lost a son, but she found a savior. John Bloom, I'll end with his words. He captures it. He said, a sword will pierce through your own soul. The most wonderful, gracious event in human history was God sending his son into the world to the cross to save his people from their sins. And this gracious event caused indescribable grief for Mary. This is important to note, as God works out his salvation of sinners, he leads us along unexpected paths that result in unexpected and sometimes agonizing pain. When it does, we can remember Mary. The darkest moments of her life, the sword that stabbed deepest into her heart was the moment that God used most to bring salvation and joy to the world and to her. That's how he works with us too. When the sword pierces, all it feels like is terrible pain, but later we discover that our deepest wounding often becomes the channel through which the most profound grace flows. God's promises give us the assurance that whatever may come, it is well with my soul, that I can trust the heart of my heavenly Father and whatever may come, his promises will come to pass. Heavenly Father, may we have the faith and the trust of Mary to say, whatever your will for me may be, let it be. 
May your promises give us the assurance to face life today and tomorrow, to know that in the pain and the disappointment and the betrayals and all the stuff, it is well. You promised us that it's well, and it is. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said,